Good job. Thank you all. All right, we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy tonight, chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20 over in the Old Testament, front of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you find your place, we'll stand and jump right into the message tonight. I am excited about this passage and sharing it with you tonight, what God has shown me. I love the Bible. Love the Word of God. I don't understand why preachers would preach anything else. There's too much in the Bible to preach, to preach something else. Never, never in a million lifetimes, Brother Burner, could we begin to exhaust the truths and the nuggets and the, and the concepts and precepts in the Word of God. And every time I pick it up, I see something I've never seen before. I love that. It's because the book is alive. The Bible is alive. It's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. I love the Word of God. Deuteronomy 20, are you there? We'll begin reading in verse number one. The Bible says, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses, and chariots, and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be, when thou art come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, Ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to save, or to fight for you rather, against your enemies to save you. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house, and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, another man dedicate it. And what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not eaten of it? Let him also go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, another man eat of it. And what man is there that hath betrothed the wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, another man take her. Verse 8, and the officer shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. I want to preach tonight from these verses on this thought, the foolishness of fear. The foolishness of fear. The word fearful is used in this passage, first time it's used to describe the fear of man. It is described as the word fearful is used in another place, talking about God is fearful. But this is the first time you find the word fearful. And as I begin to study this word, I begin to look at this context, I was amazed at some truths that I found that quite frankly ought to make us ashamed if we are living a life of fear of the world and the things of the world. So let's pray. Let's jump right into this and ask God to help us tonight. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for the privilege to preach your word. I pray that you bring it alive to us. Pray, Father, that you would uh, just help us tonight as we look in our own heart, our own life, our own testimony, our standing with you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight. If there's someone here struggling with this area of fear, being fearful of things we should not be fearful of, help us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. I want to just begin tonight by saying this. For Christians, for a born-again child of God, to live in a perpetual state of fear is not just sinful, it's not just unbiblical, but when we look at the verses tonight, we see that it's just foolish. It literally is foolish. In the last couple of years, I have seen 
people that call themselves Christians allow fear to dictate every decision that they make. Their life's been put on hold. They've done things they never thought they would do. They've stopped doing things they never thought they would stop doing, like going to church and other things. Uh, The fear has become glorified. It's become, as a matter of fact, the world and the devil and the devil's crowd would almost make you think that being fearful is patriotic. But the Bible has a lot to say about fear, has a lot to say about the foolishness of it. Tonight, we're going to look at just these few eight verses and look at several things that God has helped me with because we are living, I believe, in the, the, the most fearful generation of Christians. Can I say that? Since the book of Acts. You read the book of Acts, you didn't see fear. You didn't see uh, uh, people walking around wadded up and nervous and scared. There was a boldness. There was a courage. There was a, a confidence in God and God's power that enabled them to do things that you and I read about. We say, oh, I wish I could do that. There's a reason why we can't. But yet we live in a generation today where Christians are just about scared of everything. And, and, and the world has figured out how to trigger that fear. They've learned how to fuel that fear, feed that fear. The news headlines are written in such a way to cause your heart to skip a beat. The, 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 the websites and the, and the social medias and all the things that are on there, we call it clickbait. It's designed in such a way to just keep you in a perpetual state of anxiety and fear. But that is not something that a child of God ought to be doing on a daily basis. As a matter of fact, I was reading about just this great Supreme Court victory, another one this week, where a football coach insisted on praying on the field even after he was told he couldn't. For those of you that are not aware of the story, the Supreme Court on Monday with a 6-3 ruling sided with a football coach who was fired for praying on the field after, game, after games, just going out to the field, kneeling on the field and praying. And it marked another win for religious liberties. And the case surrounded this high school football coach named Joseph Kennedy, who taught in the Bremerton School District in the state of Washington. He's a devout Christian. He began working at Bremerton High School in 2008, was fired for his role as an assistant, a varsity assistant coach and as the junior varsity head coach after he refused, and this is the word I love, he refused to quit praying on the 50-yard line in full view of the public following the football games. Now, Kennedy, Coach Kennedy asserted that the school district violated the free speech and the free exercise clauses of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. There's a lot you can read about in the news about this case, but I don't know what surprises me the most. The fact that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the First Amendment or the fact that there are not more football coaches doing what that coach had the guts to do. I cannot believe in this country as many so-called supposed professing Christian coaches as there are, why there was only one. Why was it just one that was willing to take a stand, willing to paddle upstream, go against the current, go against what everybody was telling him to do? And with all the opposition, all the horrible uh, publicity in the media and all of the things that are said in the social media and all the, the threat of lawyers and fees and courts and losing his job and all these things, he continued to stand fearless on his principles. Why are there so few people like that? Why? Why? 
It's unbelievable. We live in a society where for the first time since the book of Acts, professing Christians are afraid to take a stand. And when someone does take a stand, they're treated like a hero. They're treated like, like just a celebrity. But the truth is, everybody ought to be doing that. And if everybody did do it, we could turn this country around in about 24 hours. Because there's more Christians than there are pagans in this country. Or I shouldn't say there's more professing Christians. Let me say that. There's more people that identify as a Bible-believing Christian than there is in this, this far left, fringe, lunatic, radical crowd. But it seems like they're the one always getting their way because Christians are filled with fear. So what got me to this passage of scripture was the first mention of the word fearful. By the way, the word fearful is used in the book of Revelation to describe the group of people that's going to go to hell. All right? Is everybody, is everybody okay? You mind, you mind if I just back this up with Bible? I don't want to misquote this verse, all right? And I've quoted it many times. But the fearful, this is Revelation chapter 21, verse number eight. But the fearful, that's the first one on the list. The fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. I just want to go on record tonight again and say that a Christian professing to be a born-again believer that is full of fear, that spirit of fear did not come from God, it came from the devil. It's demonic. It's nothing to be proud of. We've got in the society today where even pastors and churches and church leaders are encouraging and condoning fear in the hearts of their church members. They're enabling fear. It's unbelievable. You cannot, listen to me, you cannot have faith and fear at the same time. It is impossible. And just like faith is a choice, fear is also a choice. You can wake up in the morning and say, I refuse to be afraid. I refuse to be terrified. I refuse to live a life of fear. I refuse. I'm not doing it. It's a choice. It's a choice. And I don't know tonight who needs this message. But I've been working on this message for several days. I was working on another message on fear for about two weeks. And Lord just kind of changed it and turned it over to this direction right here. I'm going to give you three reasons tonight, several subpoints under some of these, on fear is foolish, and here's why. Number one, fear is foolish because of the deception about the battle's aspects. Now stay with me. First mentioned principle of the word fearful is in verse number eight. The context of verse number eight is verses number one and following. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.7, listen to me, God hath not given us the spirit of fear. And it is a spirit. Fear is a, is a spirit. It's a spiritual battle that rages in your mind. And, and the devil sets up camp between your ears. And in your heart, it's a spirit of fear. And the world is filled with fear tonight. They're fearful over everything. They're fearful over, over the political uncertainties. They're fearful over the next ruling of the Supreme Court. They're fearful over the economic situation. They're fearful over food shortages. They're fearful over the price of gas. Where's this thing going to go? They're fearful over, over viruses and, and everything. I mean, they're, they're, the world is scared 
and fearful about everything. For the first time in a while, the world is scared of Christians. We got them like that right there. Roe versus Wade getting overturned has got the world like this right here. We ought to strike while the iron's hot is what we ought to do. We ought to just keep going and keep going and keep going. But it's going to take some Christians that are not filled with fear. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So if you have the spirit of fear, you cannot have power, love, or sound mind. They're opposite from each other. You cannot profess to have a sound mind and have the spirit of fear at the same time. You can't have a sound mind running on fear because your fear is fueled by the lies and deception that you allow Satan to whisper in your ear that you choose to believe. I'm gonna just give you a couple of them tonight because wherever there is fear in the heart and life of a Christian, there is the lack of truth There's a lack of facts. There's a lack of understanding of reality. Deception is the only way faith can live. I mean, fear can live rather. Deception only can live when, uh, fear can only live when it's fueled by lies and deception. That's why the world hates the facts. They hate truth. That's why they're having a so-called, so-called whatever kangaroo outfit this is doing up there right now where there's there's nothing but hearsay in the Congress about this January the 6th thing. And if you believe anything that you hear in the media about that, I got a bridge I want to sell you after church, okay? It's, it's, it, it's absolutely unbelievable for the first time in America where they're calling it some sort of a legal hearing and there's zero, zero facts being presented. It's all hearsay and people that disagree with them are not allowed to say anything. I'm not going to get distracted, but I'm just telling you right now. The people that are lying to you hate the facts. They hate truth. That's why they're censoring people. That's why if you get on YouTube or Facebook and you say certain things, they will block you. They'll give you strikes and they will demonetize you because, see, they can't continue to fuel the fear when there are facts and truth coming into play. The only way fear lives is when there's deception. And for you and I to be afraid, we have to buy into a lie. I'm going somewhere with this. There are several things that we find in these verses right here about being afraid and how that fear is foolish because you have been deceived about the very nature of the battle. Let's look at just a couple of them. Subpoints. Number one, there's you have to be deceived about the actual opposition that you are encountering. Look at what it says in verse number one. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, in verse number one, I want you to understand something. The first thing that you and I need to remember about the opposition, and even though this passage of scripture says against thine enemies, we need to understand that the enemies that God is referring to are actually his enemies. Stay with me now. The people that God calls in verse number one, thine enemies are literally enemies of God. Therefore, by default, God's people are their enemies. So they are our enemies. They look at us as their enemies, but we're only their enemies because they're enemies of God. So when we, when we talk about the opposition, it is essential that you and I understand that those in our life that oppose us 
actually, at the end of the day, when you get right down to it, they oppose God and the word of God. They only oppose you because you want to identify with God and the word of God and line up with God and you're on God's side. Jesus said this in John 15. Jesus said in John 15 verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. This is Jesus talking. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things which that will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. So the world, they say they hate us. They say they hate everything we stand for. But it's only because we agree with God, they actually hate God. They hate the Bible. They hate the truth. And so at the end of the day, our enemies are only our enemies because they are enemies of God. So preacher, what are you saying? I'm saying some of the reason why some people get afraid and fearful during the battle is because they take it personal. Take it personal. Your family that hates you only hates you because you're a Christian. If you were to walk into the next family reunion and say, I've renounced Christianity, I've left that crazy church over there, I ain't listen to that crazy preacher no more, we're going to all just go get drunk, we're going to shoot up, we're going to watch pornography, and we're all going to just cheat on each other's husbands and wives, they would receive you with open arms. Jesus told his disciples, they're going to hate you because they hated me. So the, the opposition, we need to understand, it's not about you. It's about who you represent. It's about who you love. You say you love God, well, they hate God. So if you love God, they hate you. These people screaming in the streets, these people pitching fits about this Roe versus Wade, they don't hate us, they don't even know us. They hate God. So we've been, if you're not careful, you'll be deceived about the very nature of the battle because of the opposition. They, they, they not only oppose God, listen to me now, they not only oppose God, they not only oppose the people of God and the word of God and the house of God, but 2 Timothy 2 says they oppose themselves. <laughs> In 2 Timothy 2 verse 24, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. They are against themselves. <laughs> they think killing their unborn baby is going to give them a happy life. They think growing old with no children and grandchildren. And, 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 and a news commentator said it so well. The world has succeeded in convincing the younger generation the only way you can be happy is not have a family. Kill all your kids before they're born so that you don't have any children. But if you messed up, if you slipped up, if you didn't get the memo and you actually have children, then here's what you do. You take them to a doctor and you get them mutilated so you can't have grandkids. 
they oppose themselves. The, the, the more they pursue liberty and freedom and enlightenment, the more miserable and unhappy they become. They oppose themselves. So don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. Deceptive about the, the, the opposition. Secondly, we can be deceived about the very optics. The very optics. And I saw this verse and it jumped off the page of me. Verse 1. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies and seest. You ought to underline that word. Seest horses and chariots and the people more than thou. Be not afraid of them. Why would God say that? You're looking at it. You see their horses. You see their chariots. You see their armies. You see their people. Things are never what they seem to be or what they appear to be. Listen to me very carefully. A very great example of the deception of our optics is found in Genesis chapter number three, verse number six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. She acted on what looked good. She let her eyes, she let her vision, she let what she saw stir and motivate an emotional reaction. And because she acted on what she saw, she plunged all of humanity into sin. You cannot believe what you see. You can't believe what you see. The just shall live by their faith. Listen to me. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you allow what you see and what you hear to dictate your relationship with God, you will live in a perpetual state of fear because it looks bad. It sounds bad. And your eyes will tell your brain and your brain will tell your heart and you will begin to be filled with fear and you'll be tormented by that fear because you're believing what you're seeing but what you're seeing is not real. It's not at all what it appears to be. When thou seest, when thou seest the horses, when thou seest the chariots, when thou seest a people more than thou, he said, be not afraid of them. Thirdly, we can be deceived about being outnumbered. Seest horses and chariots and people more than thou. But Pastor Shiflet, there's more of them than there is of us. The Bible's clear. There's only a remnant, very small remnant as a matter of fact. Isaiah chapter number one talks about that little remnant, that little handful of people that God's always had down through history. Little handful of people, that remnant that God's always had. Preacher, there's more of them than there is of us. That's where you're wrong. One thing you can always remember, you and I will never be outnumbered as long as we're standing with God. Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? You say, goodness gracious, there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, that giant was a lot bigger than David too, but when he was dead with his head cut off, it didn't matter, did it? In 2 Chronicles chapter number 32, here's what the king said in verse number six. He set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city and spake comfortably to them. 
He spoke comfortably. He was comforting them. Here's how he comforted them. Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitudes that is with him. For there is more with us than with them. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. It don't matter how many people they have. It don't matter how many uh, troops and multitudes of trained armed soldiers they have in chariots and horses. We've got God. So when your eyes are telling you that we're outnumbered and your heart's telling us that you're you're outnumbered, you're not outnumbered if you're on God's side. Do you see what I'm talking about? I see the deception of the very attributes and nature and aspects of the battle. If you and I can go into war understanding these things right here, there's no way in the world you can have fear. There's no way. There's no way. There's no room for fear when you understand these things. Number two, fear is foolish because of disregard for the blessings that are available to the believer in battle. I want you to look with me, if you would, in verse number one. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be when thou art come nigh to the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people. He shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day into battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. It's almost like a thesaurus here. It's almost a thesaurus. This list of words that almost say the same thing. Let not your hearts faint. Fear not. And do not tremble. Neither be you terrified because of them. Are y'all getting this? It was like God was just covering all the bases. Don't be afraid, don't be fearful, don't be terrified, don't tremble, all the above. Why? Why? Why did God set it up that before the armies, before the generals and the captains and all the trained troops went to battle, why did he have a priest come and stand in front of them and give the pep talk? Why was the priest the one that was assigned the responsibility to boost the morale of the troops before the battle? Because they were the people of God and every battle they fought was a spiritual battle. That's why God got angry with David when he went and numbered the troops. God's like, why are you counting the soldiers? You've never relied on the soldiers for victory. It's always been up to me. You didn't count the troops when you ran toward Goliath and it was one against two. A giant and an armor bearer, you didn't count the troops then. Why are you counting them now? It's a spiritual thing. Can I tell you something? As Christians and as children of God, the battles that we face each and every day is a spiritual battle. And it is absolutely impossible to be filled with fear when we understand the blessings that God has made available to us as his people. Look at the text. Look at the text. For the Lord your God, verse 4, is he that goeth with you. We have the blessings, first of all, of God's presence. My goodness. My goodness. I don't know how you could be afraid in a battle with God standing there. I just don't. I just don't. I, I just don't understand how you could be afraid of the bully on the playground with your big brother standing right beside you. Yeah. 
And his presence obviously is a pretty big deal or he wouldn't have manifested himself in a visible form to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Which I love this. They wasn't afraid before they saw him. He wasn't standing with them when they were standing there defying the king and defying that, that global edict that you got to bow down and worship this graven image. He didn't come stand with them right then. Oh, he was there. Thank you, Lord. He was there. They just didn't see him. And the king didn't see him. But when they went into that fire, he said, Lo, did we not cast three men into the fire? They said, Yep, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's three. He said, I see four men walking in the midst of the fire, and the form of the fourth is likened to the Son of God. Don't tell me that the presence of God in the battle is not a morale booster. So my question is, how, how do we justify being afraid in the battle if God is there with us and he promised he would be? You cannot place a price tag on God's promise to go with us. Psalm 23, 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. It's foolish because of the disregarding the blessings of God's presence. Secondly, the blessing of God's performance. Look at what it says in verse 4. The Lord your God is he that goeth with you to stand on the sidelines with a pom-pom and say, go, go, go. You can do it. You can do it. No. He's not on the sidelines cheering. He's not on the sidelines saying, remember everything I taught you. Remember what you learned. Remember what I showed you. No, he's on the battlefield fighting for us. How can you be afraid? How foolish do we have to be to allow fear to fill our hearts when God himself is not only there, but he's fighting our battles for us. Sit back and let God fight it. Sit back and let God fight it. Not long do we see the blessings, I mean, let me ask you this. Can you name, I've been working on this for hours, but I might have missed something. Can you name a single battle that God has ever lost? I remember the first time Mike Tyson got knocked out. Everybody couldn't believe it. Well, Mike Tyson, that man punched. He was a fighting machine when he hit you. You didn't know what day of the week it was. There came a day when he got knocked out and I was like, oh my goodness. But God's never lost a fight. Never. And he's fighting for, are y'all, am I reading this right? To fight for you against your enemies. How in the world could you be afraid when you've got somebody with that kind of a track record fighting for you? The blessings of God's presence, the blessing of God's performance, and the blessing of God's protection. Verse number four, for the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. <laughs> Explain how you could possibly be fearful when God Almighty's promised to save you. I put this in my notes. What part of I will save you do we not understand? I will save you. 
Thirdly, fear is foolish because of the detriment to the brethren's assurance. Now, this is where it really got interesting because this was the verse that I started at and I had to back up and get brought up to speed. The first time we find the word fearful, talking about man's fear is verse number eight. And I begin to look at these scenarios here. We find a small minority of people from verse number five down to verse number eight that were given clear exemptions from the battle. They were allowed to be sent back home during the battle. They didn't have to fight. First one was a guy that hath built a house. Verse number five, built a new house, hath not dedicated it. Let him go and return it to his house. Lest he die in the battle, another man dedicated. All right. Let, let, if a man's built a brand new house, he hasn't dedicated it yet. Let him leave the battlefield and go back and move into his new house. Second guy, a guy that has planted a vineyard, a man that has planted a vineyard in verse number six and hath not yet eaten of it. Let him go also and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. Third guy, third group of people. A man that has been betrothed to a wife has not yet been able to be united together in holy matrimony. Let him leave the battle and go back to that woman lest he die and another man take her. Okay. I'm, I'm liking this. I'm thinking, boy, that's pretty awesome. God, God's, a, God's a compassionate, considerate, and a loving God to think about those three unique dynamics and make accommodations for it. Is everybody still with me? But then there's a fourth, there's a fourth one. And he sent home too, but for a completely different reason. The first three, the first three were sent home because they were allowed to miss the war out of God's respect for them. But this fourth guy in verse number eight was told to miss the war out of respect for everybody else. Here's what God said. If you've got a guy that's afraid, that's fearful, I want you to pack his bags, take him to the train station, send him back home, not because we want to give him somewhere safe to live, a safe space. We want to get rid of him because his fear will demoralize the rest of the troops. Because fear is contagious. It's like a cancer. It starts out small and it begins to spread and it starts in your mind. A little seed the devil puts there and now it's in your heart. Your heart's filled with fear and then you begin to talk and you begin to speak and the words of fear begin to go to your wife and your children and everybody they come in contact with and it starts out over here on this pew and the next thing you know, the whole church is filled with fear. Why? Because one person has forgotten that God's there. God's fighting the battles. God's promised salvation. That's not our problem. It's God's enemies and they all of a sudden have gotten so fearful that now they've affected everybody else that was fine before they got fear, fearful. And I'm looking at this story, I'm thinking, my goodness, I would hate to be in category number four. Um, sir, I'm scared. I'm scared. They didn't gather around him and pray. They didn't have a Bible study. They didn't send a couple of big old gnarly, burly soldiers in his tent, spend a night with him, make him feel protected in case the boogeyman was under his, 
sleeping bag. You know what they said? Bye. We don't want you here. We got to fight. You're full of fear. And the Bible says, what man there is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go and return into his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. And I thought about this, Brother Bettner. There was no mention of the adverse reaction or the, or the, the decrease in morale over the guy that got to go back home and live in a brand new house while they're out there sleeping in the mud. There was no mention whatsoever of the loss of morale over the guy that got to go back home and eat the fresh vegetables and the fresh fruit and the home-cooked meals while they're out there living off of K-rations. There was no mention of the, the, the drop in morale and the disappointment and jealousy and bitterness over the man that gets to leave the battlefield and go home and be with his wife. Nobody's got a problem with that. But the guy that's there that's fearful, he can't stay. You got to go. You got to go. We don't want you here. You being here is endangering the whole outcome of this battle. I was reading Judges chapter number seven. God told Gideon, we got too many. <laughs> we got too many. The Midianites, man, they're just everywhere. Um, yeah, uh, Gideon, I know you're new at this, buddy. You was threshing wheat just the other day over behind your daddy's threshing floor over there. Um, I, I, I know you probably hadn't read the manual. And I know you skipped the whole boot camp and everything. You were so busy wringing water out of fleeces and filling bowls and this and that. Come on now. He spent more time filling bowls and wringing out, wringing out fleeces than he did training for this war. And God said, um, let me just give you a little update here. Um, you got too many soldiers. <laughs> we need to get rid of some of these. But there's a multitude of Midianites. Yeah, I know, but I, I'm not counting them. I'm not worried about them. You got too many. Let's do this right here. I, I, I got an idea. I got to do. I'll tell you how we thin the herd out real quick. The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Um, now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned to the people 20 and 2,000. And there remained 10,000. Two-thirds of them. I was fixing to say that before the school administrator said it. I knew that, two-thirds. A little over two-thirds. 22,000 said, I'm out of here. I don't want to be here. 10,000 stayed. I want to leave you with three simple truths. I'm finished. Here's three simple truths right here tonight. Listen to me. Fear is foolish, number one, because whatever you're afraid of, it probably isn't even real. Number two, fear is foolish because you've been promised by God that he will be with you, fight for you, and save you. And number three, fear is foolish because when you're fearful, it causes others to be fearful also. I would hate to be the source of someone's fear. The Bible says for us to provoke one another to love and good works, not fear.
not fear. I'm going to say this as nicely as I can. If you're here tonight and your heart's full of fear, keep it to yourself. You need to pray. You need to get right with the Lord. Ask God to help you with that. But you don't need to be talking about all these things you're afraid of to other people that are probably perfectly fine until you started running your mouth about how scared you were. And all of a sudden they're like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. There's no room in the life of a Christian for fear. God hath not given us a spirit of fear, of power and of love and of a sound mind. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to preach your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture that reminds us, Lord, that you're here. You're with us through the battle, in the battle, fighting for us to save us. I pray, God, that you would help us tonight. Search our hearts as the musicians are playing. Folks are coming to the altar. Search our hearts tonight. Ask you to help us with any fear, fear of the world, fear, fear of those around us. Lord, we, we need courage and boldness in the New Testament church right now. We need it more than ever. Have your will away in this invitation, I pray. In Jesus' name. Folks are coming. Folks are coming tonight. Would you respond to the message? God's spoken to your heart. Why don't you come? Fear will paralyze you if you allow it to go unchecked.